0: Psalm 137. We are at the end of our series in in Psalms, and we are at that point uh, where I am putting a bow on it. But it might not, this psalm might not be the the bow that you think. Usually, bows are like, oh, look, this is going to be so neat. This is going to be, uh, we're staying with the theme of tough questions that are found in the Psalms. In the summer of 1941, in the Polish town of Jedbadne, a massacre of Jews took place. Roughly 1,600 men, women, and children were all rounded up, and at that place, they were burned. A witness described the scene as beards of old Jews were burned, newborn babies were killed at their mother's breasts, people were beaten murderously and forced to sing and to dance. Bloodied and wounded, they were pushed into a barn which was then doused with kerosene and then it was lit by their non-Jewish neighbors. How do we expect those Jewish people to respond? How do the people of God respond to Planned Parenthood? Planned Parenthood has killed 76 million babies since legally, they began legally performing, performing abortions in 1973, following the Roe v. Wade decision. It is a catastrophic number, but yet millions of people just shrug it off. That, my friends, that is more than two times the population of Los Angeles. How do the people of God respond to 7.6 million children murdered how do we respond to a person who is in a marriage that was at one time vibrant and healthy where love was exchanged in the home and the children were pointed to christ but now due to multiple extramarital affairs it is now riddled with absence with debt and claims to finances but no repentance how does that spouse respond how does a parent who had a children child killed by a drunk driver respond? A driver that had already been had a conviction or two of driving under the influence and the night of the wreck was completely hammered. But now he is walking away from the accident and the court's almost untouched. How does that person respond? What about the historic church in South Carolina Hosts an open Bible study, and a white supremacist walks into this historically black place of worship and opens fire and kills nine people. And that shooting ha- occurs less than a year after Ferguson. How do how does the African American church respond to this? How do we respond? How do we respond to uh, radical Islamic Militants, raging attacks on uh, Christians in Nigeria for years, violating places of worship, killing pastors, killing worshipers. How do we respond? How do they respond? There are times in the course of our life where depression, anger, injustice, and pain overwhelm us. We we experience emotional climaxing of our depression, of our anger and our pain. And at times it is absolutely overwhelming. And yet our evangelical culture tells us to clean up, wash your face, show up to church. We greet each other with hugs over a, a warm cup of coffee because it's cold in the church. We, we put on our happy face. We, sing some ha- we, we hope to sing some happy song that is exhilarating, that speaks positive words into our lives and will hopefully lift us out of our gloom. We, we even pray safe, cleaned-up prayers. But what do we do when we hit our wall? What do we do? Do we echo REM sentiment of shiny happy people just we're just to be shiny happy people in our psalmist today in psalm 137 he says no so would you stand for the reading of god's word Hear God's holy and inerrant word. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion! How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you for what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It felt good up to verse 9, right? So, the psalm, when we read psalms like this, my guess is that part of it is like we're a little embarrassed to read the entire psalm because it feels almost anti Christian. We, we read it and it's, it's kind of shocking. It expresses a, a certain resolve to stay faithful to God and to his people no matter what. And then those chilling lines, every syllable in which just kind of jar our bones and they disturb our heart. A call is called down. A, a curse is called down on, on the, the oppressors of God's people. And if, if we're going to read a psalm, we would much rather read a psalm like Psalm 23, right? Right? It's warm, it's fuzzy, it's cleaned up, it's purdy. But this has a kind of a a jarring effect. In a world where there's feels like there's enough revenge already going on, it doesn't seem like the church needs to hear these words like, Blessed shall he be who takes your babies, your infants, your children, and dashes them against the rock. Do we really want to be encouraging this? Some of you moms might be clinging your children a little bit more tighter if the answer is yes. Do we want to encourage us? Shouldn't we be praying the, the words of the Lord's Prayer like, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? Better than, and that should become our default response, right? Instead of dash their infants against the wall. Of course, let's admit that we have to admit that Psalm 137 is not a lone voice in the Psalter. Despite our attempts to turn in the psalms into this sweet kind of devotional, precious moments kind of book, there are many words of deep anger that are found in the psalms. Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. Or, Or Psalm 11, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Or what about Psalm 58? Oh God, break the teeth in their mouth. Shiny, happy people. No, this is, you know, it's the tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanquish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Let the stillborn child never see the sun. So Psalm 137 is not a lone voice. But it certainly does feel, dare I say, feels almost unchristian. And as a result, many Christians and even the Vatican itself has performed what they call, what Eugene Peterson would call a psalmectomy, a psalmectomy, where we remove those dangerous or uncomfortable kind of psalms. It's not even found in, in the da- daily prayers in for the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church anymore. Remove them because we don't know what to do with them. We want to be at our best before God. We want to speak words of devotion, of courage, and of faithfulness. But we don't want it to sound like it has come out of the Taliban. So what do we do with this? The problem with the psalmectomy, though, is it exercises the voices of people who I have described already. Those who have gone through genocide. Those who have gone through deep pain and injustices. And if we take away psalms like Psalm 137, we are only left with a couple different options. One, some will force themselves to just pretend. If we take away Psalm 137, you are forced to pretend. We we might get, make spirited efforts to forgive, but they're never quite we're never quite able to get there, and outwardly we may say the right words, but deep inside there is resentment and the rage still remains buried. Without getting to express our anger, we have to pretend that there really is none there and that even having these feelings is unhuman. While others will become professional victims. They basically just give up on life. They give up on courageous decisions and they give up on people that they know they were hurt and they're just going to have to live out my pain and suck it up. As Eugene Peterson says, Psalm 137 resists both of these moves. It doesn't recommend hatred. Rather, it expresses the feelings are there. And only then can we, we move forward. And this psalm, as difficult as it may sound, honestly, for somebody who has been through pain and injustice, it is refreshingly honest. So there are three parts to this psalm and these I, I want you to look carefully at these three parts of Psalm 137. The first three verses speaks of people the people of pain, God's pained people. The second part is verses 4 through 6 and it it talks about a certain kind of defiant love or just just outward defiance. And then the third part 7-9, through nine, well, it, it records a longing for justice, and yes, even a curse. So, let's look at the first section. A pained people. Once again, we find that the context of this psalm is that the, the children of Israel are finding themselves in Babylon in captivity a 70 year period where the nation itself and the people themselves are are devastated and deported and this this honest, honestly it was the just judgment of God against a wicked indifference and an adulterous people They were were going after other gods. They were making forbidden alliances. They were not worshiping the one and true God according to his word. And they had been warned for at least a hundred years that this is coming. Uh, He he sent prophets. He sent his prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and just saying, listen, listen, this is going to happen. But ultimately, God said, enough. And they were sent into exile. And part of the military strategy was to displace people and ultimately assimilate people into the Babylonian culture so that insurrections would be less likely and the people would be instructed in the Babylonian way. You look at the book of Daniel. And that is a picture of what was taking place in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel himself. Those are all pictures of the Babylonian way of assimilating the people into their culture. So what do we learn from the pain that's recorded in verses 1 to 3? Well, here's what I want to draw your attention to. Is that God's people are often called, whether we like it or not, we are often called to great suffering. I know we are comfortable right now in our, our North American context, but God's people are often called to great suffering. One of the, A basic Old Testament principle is this. Judgment begins in the house of God. It doesn't start outside of the house of God. It starts here within the house of God. And the judgment which is first recorded in this psalm is not ultimately for the nations, is it? It's not. It's against God's own people. And they are experiencing the crippling and enormous pain because of their deserved judgment. They are being punished because of not heeding the words of the, of the uh, prophets who came before them, who brought the word of God, calling them to repent. They are now finding themselves, because they have abandoned God, they are finding themselves receiving what they do deserve. He has driven them from their land. He has put them into captivity, and these people are finding themselves suffering. Their sins, their national sins have brought them to this dire calamity. So what do we learn about this? What can we learn from the first three verses? Well, first is I, I, I want us to always be heightened to this that we need to walk away understanding and grappling with the dreadfulness, the dreadfulness of sin. It is a truth that we will never Never in this life know fully the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In fact, what, what do we often do? We, we talk about sin as, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I screwed up. Oh, I'm sorry. But sin is sinful. And there is a, an exceeding sinfulness of sin. We, we won't even fully understand, even when we stand before the cross of, of Christ and, and by the Holy Spirit, we see our sin as we, as we have ever seen it before. We stand before Christ and we say, oh, but gracious, I am riddled with sin. That moment where we have seen and understood the gospel, we, we see our sin, but we will not have even scratched the surface of the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. We, we, we get a glimpse. William Plummer, an, an old Southern Presbyterian commentator, said this. And I think, uh, yep, there it is. There must be something exceedingly dreadful in sin so that sad consequences could not flow from it in time and eternity. This world has always been under the government of the kindest being in the universe. And so when we see sin punished like this, we must be witnessing just judgment against something that is dreadful at a magnitude beyond our capacity of explanation. So when we look at a psalm, this psalm and we see the pain of Israel, what should we do? God wasn't just disturbed by the sin of Israel. He was angered at their sin. What should we do? How do we respond? When we read stuff like this, it should press us to confess our own sin. Does Psalm 137 drive you to the consideration of the sinfulness Of your own sin? Or do you consider to just just kind of whitewash it? Clean it up? Excuse it away? Or do we see the sinfulness of our own sin? Does it drive you to say, Lord, rid me of this sin. Help me by your Spirit to put this sin to death because this sinful sin is It's killing me and it's dishonoring you. The second thing that we ought to do as we look at Psalm uh, 137 verses 1 to 3 is this. We should even recognize the privileges that we enjoy under God's hand of blessing. Did you notice that? Just a quick reading of it. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Dickinson, another old uh, Presbyterian commentator on the Westminster Confession of Faith, says this, those who do not esteem the privileges of Zion when they have them will be forced to acknowledge their worth when they don't. We wept when we remembered Zion. But when the children of Israel were in Zion before the exile, they weren't remembering Zion. And Zion is not just a city or a place. It, when that word is used, it encapsulates all that is about God. His promises, his faithfulness, his judgment, his loving kindness, his hesed love towards his people. But when they were in Zion, they, they didn't remember them. They weren't thinking about Zion at all. And because they did not value the blessings of God when they had them, they had to lament them when they were gone. And so we're confronted, So when we're confronted with this kind of pain in the history of redemption and in the people of God under the old t- covenant, we ourselves need to appreciate. We need to appreciate the blessings and the privileges of of Zion, of his, his covenant love for us. Everything that He has given, we need to remember. But let's move on. There's a certain kind of uh, defiance that we see here. If you look at verses 46, you, you see a, a resolve and a certain Defiance and having been told by their captors and their tormentors to sing the songs of Zion, it's kind of like the bullies along the way poking in pride and say, Ho oh, oh, ho, oh, go ahead, sing your songs of Zion now. Because what has happened? We have totally destroyed your city. You are all moved out. We have killed your your princes and your, your priests, your temple workers. We've devastated them. Now sing us a song of Zion. And so what do we see them do? Not only have they hung up their their lyres, their their musical instruments on on the tree, in verse 2 saying, you know, I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play for you. I'm not going to, you're, you're not going to tell me to dance. You're not going to tell me to sing. I'm hanging up my lyre on the tree. But we also see these words of question and this, this, this sense of resolve. And the question is in verse 4, right? And the resolve is in verses 5 and 6. The, the question is, how long? How long shall we sing this song in a strange land? It's a cry, it's a lament, but it's a very serious question and it's one that we would do well to pay attention to in our own land because this land is becoming stranger and stranger to us and we forget that all the time. But here's the resolve. Responding to the question that they've, they've been given to, uh, given to the question. If I forget you, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget its skill. There's some who would say that it's not just my right hand forget its skill, but it's almost as if let my right hand wither if I forget Jerusalem. Let my, my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This is a, this is a resolution This is a resolution to treasure God, to treasure his people, to treasure his promises above everything else. I am resolving to treasure you. They hadn't been doing that in Jerusalem. And now in exile, they finally see, are seeing clearly what truly matters. And there is a defiant resolve. They are saying, I'm not going to treasure something more than God. I'm not going to treasure something more than his worship. I'm not going to treasure something more than his means of grace. I'm not going to treasure something more than his people, more than his presence. I'm not going to treasure anything in this life more than God himself. And don't you see how in our own affluence, right here in 2019, we are tempted to this very sin that was that sent Israel into exile. We, we, we find ourselves treasuring all manner of things in this life, don't we? Man, I treasure my marriage more than I treasure God. I treasure my Finances more than I treasure God. I treasure my, my social place more than I treasure God. I treasure my grandchildren more than I treasure God. I tre- you fill in the blank. My friends, we are in danger of this just as much as the children of Israel. Israel had to learn their lesson in exile. And by God's grace, let's not go there. Let's not go there to treasure Zion more than anything else. We see the psalmist here is defiant in his love for the city of God. To to sing a song in light of what happened just doesn't matter. He is grieving and he is longing for a better day. And and it kind of just ends there with with verse 6, right? It's this, man, I I want to treasure you, O God. I want you to be my highest joy. And that right there feels like a great place for the psalmist to say, Amen, let's go home. But he doesn't, does he? What what does he do? He moves on. What what do we do? Let me just read it again. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. Can you kind of hear that tone in his voice? The day of Jerusalem. So he is remembering the destruction and the pain of and the, the, the assault on the city wall and the death that took place. He is remember against the Edomites in the day of Jerusalem how they, they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Where do you go? Where do you go with the emotions that you feel? Do you hide them? Do you push them down? Do you recognize them? Do you speak about them? E- Eugene Peterson speaks into our desire for safe and sterile put together environments. He says this. You got one for me there, Rachel? (laughs) It is easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. It is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. He goes on to say the way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will will appear respectable, but to expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. So let's look at these last seven painful, dark, white-hot kind of verses. These verses long for justice to be done right and the psalmist is finding himself personally helpless he's captive in a foreign land he is powerless to change the circumstances of his life so he does the only thing that he is capable of doing in this moment and it is not protesting in the streets what is he doing he is crying out to god and these words are honest, they're painful, and they're a bit troubling. And verse 7 is, is directed towards the people of Edom. And if you know anything about Edom, the people of the Edomites, they were the descendants of Esau. And they lived in the south. And at the invasion of Jerusalem, by that time, the Edomites, Edomites did nothing to assist Uh, the the nation of Israel, because they were already conquered people of Babylon. They were already vassals. They were already working for and under the, the control of Babylon. And what did they do? These people who were distant relatives, the Edomites, what did they do? They rejoiced at the downfall of their neighbors. And the psalmist asked for judgment over them because of their lack of compassion. And then he turns quickly to Babylon, the ultimate source of his angst. He longs for the day when justice would be delivered. He aches for the time when the the scales of fairness will be balanced, a a day promised in God's word. Oh, daughter of of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed be he who repays you. (laughs) Ha, ha, the plea is based off of, of the principle of just repayment for crimes. You can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And, and it's also based on God's word that was communicated through the prophet Jeremiah. That God would repay the Babylonians for their cruelty. And verse 9 is, is graphic and it reflects the psalmist's white hot, hot pain. And so what do we say about a, a man, I'm all about God, repay, repay them for what they have done, but this, what do we do with that? What do we do with that statement of taking little ones and dashing them against the rock? The psalmist is merely echoing the specific problem uh. Promises that God Himself made regarding the total judgment of Babylon. Isaiah chapter thirteen is a word against Babylon, and in it we find that in the, that text we find the following punishment. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives will be ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the meads against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young man. They will have no mercy on the fruit of their womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So this, this psalmist is not just simply... Uh, reflecting on his own rage. But there is definitely a connection to the pain that he has and his desire for justice to be brought about. In some really hot words. He is longing here for promised judgment. And my friends, can, can you see even in that the benefit for knowing God's word? The psalmist was able to go back and remember, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the words of Isaiah, the words of the prophets. He had them hidden away in his heart so that in his moment of pain, he had words to pray. But secondly, while his emotions are very strong and quite graphic, his appeal is for God it is for God to bring judgment not his own personal revenge this is the psalm of a man who is longing for God to act, and he is pouring out his, his heart with all the pain that comes from injustice. He is not taking matters into his own hands. He is not on an assassination uh, assignment. He is not taking to the streets, burning Babylon. He is not out there secretly murdering and killing or overtly killing and murdering people. What is he doing? He is asking God to do his part. And this prayer is a gut-wrenching request to have the enemies of God's people to reap what they have sown. And the psalmist is pleading with God, God, would you take these wrongs and make them right? He longs for the day of ultimate justice. His hope, while in deep pain, is that one day, one day, God, will you fix this mess? And there is something very hopeful about that future judgment. Even though some of us have no patience for future judgment, we want to fix it right now, within a 24-hour period, or within an election cycle, or within our lifetime. Lord, would you fix this? Because if you don't, I will. So there's something very hopeful about future judgment. And this this psalm is in the Bible for a good reason. And Most of us know what it feels like to be treated unfairly. And if we don't personally, we know others who have been treated extremely unfairly. And since far too many know what it feels like to have endured even abuse, this psalm speaks to the relevant and deeply personal issue of injustice. So what is the hope of judgment? Why is the future judgment something that we should rejoice in? Because first of all, it demonstrates the holiness of our God. There is no other quality that captures God's essence besides His holiness. His holiness. And Isaiah 6 describes God as holy, holy, Holy And this divine purity is what defines His existence and holds the universe together. God's role as judge is an affirmation that He is really and truly holy. And without judgment, there is no holiness. And without holiness, there is no hope. But also... We can see here about that future judgment, it makes unfairness tolerable. Somewhere in our teenage years, we we began to learn that life isn't fair. We started hearing that more and more from our parents, right? Hey, life ain't fair. Growing up means that you come face to face with the fact that dad or mom can't fix everything, that duct tape even has its limits, and, and people do mean things, and they seem to get away with it. And to live in a world where there is no judgment would dramatically increase our pain. So the reality of a future judgment means that hurting and suffering people can keep entrusting themselves to the one who judges justly. We keep entrusting ourselves to him. And so while bad things happen and life is hard, my friends, evil does not win. And the reality of judgment makes unfairness totally tolerable. But third, this future judgment releases us from this trap of revenge. Have you ever taken your own revenge, you know, gave somebody some of their own medicine? It, can, it doesn't have to be anything bloody or anything like that. It can be just even a text, I'm going to give them some of their own medicine. Take a pound of flesh. you, You know, in that moment, it kind of feels satisfying. The problem is that taking our own revenge only reaches the level of what we felt at that moment. And that is why revenge often escalates and it keeps on going. Someone hits you, what do you do? You hit harder. Unless you're a wimp like me and then you go home and cry. But, but revenge does not resolve the pain. Revenge never balances the scales. That's what the Bible says, right? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Justice is something that only God can truly bring. So knowing that God will take care of the justice issues releases you from being trapped in your own bitterness, in your own resentment, and a lifetime of seeking to get even. It releases you. And laying it at God's feet, you are able to instead love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Knowing that God takes care, God takes care of justice, makes you free from the trap of revenge. But this future judgment also reminds you about your own culpability. An appeal to God's judgment is really a double-edged sword. By appealing to God's judgment, we are reminded of the high cost of sin and our issues that would require an act of justice. I am confident that the psalmist was fully aware that everything that was going on, everything that he was experiencing at the hand of the Babylonians was part of God's judgment on Israel. He knew that he deserved what he was receiving. So the judgment that we long to happen in the lives of others reminds us serves as a reminder of our sinfulness and our own culpability. Galatians 1, or 6, 1 captures it well. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, anyone, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, too, lest you become tempted. Judgment longed for because of personal injustice reminds us of our own crimes against God and our own crimes against others. And lastly, this future judgment is a basis for the good news. In some respects, judgment is is a central message to the entire Bible. Bible. The Apostle Paul even linked the gospel and judgment in Romans chapter 2. He said, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The good news of, of Jesus Christ, the good news of the Bible, involves judgment. The gospel message is that God has taken our judgment for sin and poured it out on Jesus so all sin is judged. Every single sin is judged. And the unbelievable message of the Bible is that God grants forgiveness from judgment and He does it through Jesus Christ. The reality of, of the judgment of sin makes the, the gospel glorious and the good news absolutely incredible. And what's more, we what's more, we, we long for the good news to have its full effect. We wait for the day where the king will come once and for all, and he will make all things new. Our longing for personal vindication makes us wait with urgency. That's why you see in, in the Bible, you hear this phrase: come, Lord Jesus. Come. It's a call for urgency. It's this desire, would you make all things new in your final kingdom? Psalm 96 captures the joy expressed in this future hope. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. For He comes. He comes to judge the earth he will judge the world in faithfulness and the people in his faithfulness so when you find yourself suffering injustice when you find yourself in deep pain you need a biblical understanding of judgment when when people treat you unfairly and especially when you they treat you cruelly and you need you need that moment to hear the promise of the day when God will balance the scales and when it seems unbearable and tremendously terribly unfair we need to rehearse the gospel because it is at the cross it's at the cross where God's judgment on sin is satisfied giving us hope for forgiveness and the promise that there will be a day when the universal presence of evil, injustice, and pain will be conquered once and for all. And that, my friends, is a longing that we all have. And the cry of our heart in the midst of Pain, anguish, depression, injustice is come, Lord Jesus. Come, let us pray. God, every